You're tuned in to RX Radio. Movement prescribed. Brought to you by Prescript.com. A personalized approach to keeping you healthy and making your best even better. Your hosts, Dr. Jordan Shallow and Dr. Jordan Jinta. Hey, what's going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of RX Radio. Um, the audio on this sounds a little bit weird. It's because I'm in my bathroom in Hawaii. Um, took a little bit of vacation. Um, as much as a vacation as you can get when you work from your laptop or where you go. Um, so this is kind of a different-ish sort of episode for you. This is actually one of our lectures from our PSL1 course. This is um, just an excerpt from one of our our classes that I've been teaching for the past eight weeks. Um, the reason we're putting this up is we're actually putting the pre-sale up for next semester today. So when this podcast goes live, um, if you go to www.pre-script.com slash courses, um, go to PSL1 pre-sale. That'll be in and amongst the PSL1 certifications we have um, kind of across the world for next year. Bakersfield, New Zealand, uh, Manchester, um, where else? Where else? We're looking at Brisbane, I think, for the latter half of the year. Um, but yeah, so a bit of a different episode. Sorry we missed you last week. Uh, just uh, I'll explain at a later date the the interpolitics that goes on between managing personalities when you own your own business. Um, so we had a podcast guest on that we recorded, um, but due to some unforeseen circumstances, um, we could not actually release that episode. So. Uh, it's all about playing nice in the sandbox when you when you run your own business. So um, this episode is going to be an excerpt from, uh, it's actually a full class. It is one of the four lectures that I teach a week for this PSL1 certification. Uh, and this one goes kind of deep dive into spine mechanics, uh, a lesser known, albeit extremely important region of the body that I think a lot of people in the training space don't have a good foothold. They don't see the purpose of it. Um, we go over a lot of things. We talk about uh, stretch reflex and, and how that can or potentially can't affect uh, output. We go over some anatomy stuff, common misnomers, why and slip discs and blowing out your back and things of the sort. Um, so again, this is a lecture. You might, you might hear me reference people as I sit in the call and um, you know, we have Usually anywhere between 13 to 15 students in a class. Um, so you might hear me reference some people. So it is an atypical episode for us, but I wanted to give you guys sort of a, an insight as to what it is the class entailed. So this is one of 16 weeks. We're on week, um, right now we're going into week eight. Um, and if you guys are interested, we uh, had the pre-sale up for a day or two without advertising. We've had a few people just land on the page and, and jump in. We cap each class at 30. Now we sold out last semester's class in about 14 hours. So uh, the pre-sale will be up for a um, likely a brief period of time and we'll put the regular uh, sale up mid-December and looking for a start time around um, mid-January once we have the calendar laid out for next year. Uh, so you guys are interested, PSL1 coaching certification course online. Um, Jump on the pre-sale, head over to prescript.com. Um, if you're on the mailing list, look an eye on your, or keep an eye on your inbox. Uh, hope you guys enjoy. Let us know what you think. Again, it's a bit of a different episode style for us. 
me and Jenta are going to be back sort of on the airwaves. He's got podcast gear heading his way and we're working on the remote setup um, as we speak. So we'll be back, hopefully the two of us reunited once again um, in weeks to come. But yeah, let us know what you think. And, um, and we'll see you guys. We'll see you guys next week. Okay. So what we'll do is we'll dive in now. Um, so we're going to go to spine. Okay. So I write notes on each class and like, Hey, this is the stuff I want to get to on each slide. So usually the slides we go through about anywhere between 15 to 20 slides in a, in a class today, we're going to go through, uh, eight, hopefully. And I usually write about five and a half pages of notes on each class, uh, today and in the eight slides, there's seven and a half pages. So we might, and with all the other groups, we've, we've gone long, so we didn't get through all of it. So I'll push it to next week. Um, spine is, it's hard. We spent the last, um, we spent the last four weeks going over shoulder and hip and being able to laterally apply and slightly adapt concepts from one to the other. So it's like, okay, we kind of hopefully get it like mobility prerequisite for stability, stability, integration of muscle function, uh, strength integrate or uh, isolation of muscle action, moving origin to insertion might be good for people who are like new to training or don't have good range of motion, but let's look to improve the range of motion so they can get into unstable positions so they can integrate muscle function and stability at these two peripheral hubs. And it's like, yeah, great. Yeah. Like it kind of makes sense. Like we have like this nice, Whoa, mom coming in hot with a text message. Did you guys hear that? Was that okay? That wasn't loud to you. It was just loud to me. Quick question. I have to leave right at 10 for a meeting. So no, I'll cut it at 10. Like we won't run over. I'll just, okay. I'll take the content we don't do and I'll put it in the next week's slide. Sick. Thanks. Um, yeah, no worries. So we have like kind of this nice little model where it's like, look, like pelvis is kind of like the scapula and like the ilium is like the scap and the adductors are kind of like the serratus and the glute med and the lateral rotator is kind of like the rotator cuff and it's like this nice little neat package concept that applies with slight variation based off function like it's clean it's neat and then we come in on week six and go hey kind of forget everything you learn because the spine is like a totally different beast um so that's that's going to be the hardest part but if you can understand the differences of it you can understand why majority of people you interact with in the fitness industry get low back pain and performance wrong um and i know that's a bit of a bold statement but hopefully you can start to see where we we as we go through these slides and underlie the structural differences that are going to predispose the functional differences as to why people hold the conceptions they have as they apply laterally concepts of the shoulder and hip to the spine. Um, and then once we sort of dig into the, the anatomy um, and a little bit, honestly, it's going to be a little bit new for some of you, the neuroanatomy side, you can start to see as, oh, okay, this is, this is different. And it's different for a reason because it lays, it lays home to, you know, the central nervous system, central nervous system being the brain, but in this case, the spinal cord, um, so we spent, yeah, we spent the last couple of weeks drilling in concepts that we're going to, uh, we're going to do away with in a, in a lot of ways, but explain why the spine is so different. Now, looking at, hold on, someone's trying to get into the course here. Give me one second. Chris, you there? Yes, I am. Okay, perfect. We got Chris. Um, 
Okay, so we'll dive in. So we're just getting started now, man, on spinal anatomy. So we're just sort of going through um, the differences that we can expect and how we can't really apply concepts uh, laterally from the shoulder and hip into the spine, just because the structure and the function is so different. So looking at the spine, um, we'll just go a quick breakdown, like seven cervical, 12 thoracic, five lumbar, five sacral coccyx. We're not really going to concern ourselves too much with the coccyx and sacrum. I mean, sacrum sort of plays its role in the pelvis as it integrates with the SI joint um, or creates the SI joint. Cervical, we won't touch on too much. We'll talk about breathing and a little bit in the role that like the strap muscles have in uh, accordance with the diaphragm. So we're going to sort of be looking primarily through the thoracic and lumbar uh, as they have some major distinct differences that will allow for certain loading parameters in one that we can't have in the other. Um, so we'll look at the structure, we'll look at the function. Uh, right now we're looking at a posterior to anterior view of the spine. Um, so we're looking at it from the back of like someone's body. Now we need to think of, okay, if we turn this picture on its side and we're looking at someone in sort of this profile view, we'd be looking at a, a um, sort of curve through lordosis and kyphosis. So the cervical spine and the lumbar spine have an anterior convexity, which is to say they have a lordotic curve. And the thoracic spine and the sacrum have a posterior convexity, which is to say they have um, a kyphotic curve. Now, curvatures can exist outside of that plane, right? You might start to deal with people, and some of you might have it yourselves, um, of lateral curvatures of the spine. So when we start to look at like scoliosis, that's a lateral curvature of the spine. It, scoliosis, there's going to be two things we talk about today. Scoliosis and disc injuries, which are structural, um, but in a lot of cases need not be too concerned with if we can understand proper function. Now, I'll never say that we can reduce a scoliosis with training or anything like that. People will make those claims, but I find them wildly unsubstantiated. Um, but just understanding what a scoliosis is, it's gonna be a curvature through this plane. Now, the most common scoliosis pattern that you'll see is a left lateral lumbar curve. So imagine someone's low back slowly starting to tear, like, tilt off to the left. The reason that's most common and because it's usually most incidental is because just like when the spine goes anterior, posterior, anterior, posterior, when we go lateral, like when the spine starts to hook off to one side or the other, there's going to be a to equal and opposite magnitude curve as that spine straightens out. And most people who have a left lateral curvature of their spine in the thoracic spine are made well aware of it because it could potentially cause cardiovascular issues because it it deviates the space in which the heart and the lungs sort of interface. Um, so most people, if they know they have a scoliosis and it's advanced to the point where it's affecting them, they usually have, <clears throat> most people have a, a, a singular curve, asymptomatic through the lower back or slightly symptomatic, but the severe ones are when they have two curves or one in the thoracic that goes left. You'll rarely need to come across it, but if you know it and you can identify it, you'll be able to take someone who has otherwise been passed around through a system of people scratching their head and be like, oh, yeah, that's a problem. Your spine does this thing at this place and that's probably not good. So it's like, that's kind of the fringes we want to paint is like, you know, if you can help someone that no one else can, that, that provides infinite value to you. Um, and it's pretty cool when you can just pick up on something just by looking because we started to talk about hypertrophy principles in the next couple of weeks. Like just like looking and paying attention is like, holy shit, what a skill. Like when we identify the scaption position in someone's shoulder, like looking and saying like, oh, okay, like your rib cage kind of does this. 
So then your arm kind of just has to go, well, no, that's too far. Well, that's too far. This porridge is too hot. This is too cold. It's like, oh, perfect. Okay, we'll just put you there. So like, teach, just like, just look and pay attention. Like that's quite, a, it's quite a skill, believe it or not. Um, okay, so we're gonna <clears throat> we're gonna spend some time diving into what I think to be necessary anatomy um, to understand function. We have to understand structure. So in looking at the vertebra, like there's just this is going to look way different in cervical as it is in lumbar and thoracic but there's some common jumping off points that major muscles of the deep spine use from origin to insertion so we have like the vertebral body which is sort of the round thing um at the at the back there at the bottom then we have like the canal which the spinal cord goes and we have sort of have like this wu-tang like projection of bones now the center of that is going to be the spinous process so that's like the projections that come out Kind of the middle of your back sort of houses houses ligaments and muscles and then we have the transverse processes which are out to either side these are going to be the home of like what we'll call true back muscles or deep back muscles well some of them some of the more important ones so these are muscles that basically go from vertebra to vertebra as we climb up the spine um, and then the one thing i also want to focus on is how these bones interface with each other and that's going to be the facet joints Facet joints are facet joints are tricky because every facet joint is different. Um, every facet joint is unique, even within subsections of the spine. So, you know, the facet joints from L1 to L2 have slightly different orientation than the facet joints from um, L4 to L5. The facet joints from T12 to T11 or T11 to T12 are different than the facet joints from uh, T1 to T2, right? So if we think about it, the facet joint is almost like think of that being an articulation. The angle in which these two bones articulate is going to dictate from a structural standpoint how that particular segment is meant to function. So what I mean by that is in the lumbar spine, the facet joints articulate in a way that doesn't that doesn't bode well through the movement of lumbar rotation. Right. So we think, oh, lumbar curve, cervical curve, my head's really good at rotating. It's a it's a lordotic curve. My neck's good at rotating it's a lordotic curve maybe my back will be good at rotating too because it's also a lordotic curve my lumbar spine no the way that the set joints work in the low back is that they do not like rotation and as we move up now we start to like rotation like it might benefit us as human beings to be able to look over our shoulder to see if something's coming to eat us or in more modern terms to back out of the driveway right so understanding the facet orientation is going to dictate basically how and in what plane we can move and with what's what relative like i can rotate my lower back and you see people do it all the time i don't recommend people rotate their lower back just as like a general rule um, and once we get into disc anatomy we'll start to see why that could be potentially dangerous but as just from a mechanical standpoint you're you're kind of you're, you're jamming two bones together that don't want to be jammed together so you, you want to rotate your neck to crack it you have my full endorsement fucking go for it you want to lean over a, a chair to crack your upper back great but if you want to do one of these like wind up kick your leg in one direction and rotate your upper back to create rotation of the lumbar spine it's like oh that's kind of where i draw the line and that flies in the face of common practice like if you go see a chiropractor more often than not within like three minutes of being there he's going to have you kind of in this like sideline position and you're going to be like oh oh god don't hurt me and then he's just going to like <clears throat> he's going to rotate your lower back and it's like oh uh, rotation is where stability lives in our body so it's like we're having an effect on the structural 
stability that 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 reinforces that that position or that plane in which our body knows stability to be through like if we think of i don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves but if we think of the disc discs do not like having rotation introduced to them and if we think of the lumbar spine it's like well maybe there's a there's a reason our facet joints don't like rotation because if our discs don't like rotation and our discs have the greatest role to play in, in managing axial force because that's so many other bones and a giant head attached to it because there's so much more load through a lumbar vertebra than there is load through a thoracic vertebra or a cervical vertebra. Maybe if, if rotation is going to be the killer, let's, let's, let's put a hard stop from a functional standpoint from the actual joints as they, as they, as they interface with one another to minimize the ability in which rotation can happen. And what do people do? It's like, oh, here. And they just like fold you up like a pretzel. It's like, or wring you out like a towel. It's like, oh God, please stop doing that. Um, so facet joint orientation is gonna dictate from a, a structural standpoint, our limitations and function based off of where the vertebrae exists in, in the column of ver vertebra. So lumbar spine is different than thoracic, but lumbar one is different than lumbar five. So that, the orientation is a very like gradual, um, uh, it's a very gradual change from vertebra to vertebra with the greatest amount of rotation being afforded in our cervical spine and the least amount in our lumbar spine. And that's sort of a protective mechanism to protect this guy. The disc, these, these slippery fuckers, people are slipping discs left, right and center. Like, like our lumbar spine is made of banana peels or something. Somehow everyone is just slipping discs. If I had, well, I kind of did have a dollar for every time I heard it because every time I heard it, someone came to see me in my office and they slipped a disc. It's like, okay. It helps to understand what it is we're talking about when we talk about a disc. Um, a couple of things to highlight is there's going to be two major components of a disc. The nucleus is what I think most people think of when they think of a disc. So the nucleus is like, it's the best. It's, I think of like a water balloon in like a wicker basket-ish. So I use wicker because if we look at the annulus, so the annulus is like this outer housing that keeps the nucleus sort of in place. This picture, albeit kind of a rough drawing, I picked it because it actually has one of the details that I find most important. If we look at the bottom of that disc, right? And notice how it's cross-sectioned out. Like they purposely carved in to show you three layers of depth in, in the annulus. I like it because they did that on purpose. Because notice the fiber orientation of the outer ring kind of runs on this 45 degree perpendicular, almost like lattice work. And then if you look in that first cross section, we start to see the orientation run in the opposite direction of 45 degrees, right? And then if we look in that third cross section, now all of a sudden the orientation is running the same way. So layer one and three are running in the same direction and layer one or layer two is running in the opposite direction. And we understood is if we carved further into that cross section, that layer two and layer four would start to re resemble each other and so on and so forth. So we have this sort of lattice work cross action to give us more stability. Um, think of like this. Have you guys ever seen a bodybuilder and their quads get quote unquote feathered? Like you see the striations of the, la the vastus lateralis and they begin to feather. It's something called um, uh, bipennate. Um, like, uh, it's a bipennate muscle, which means like the, uh, the, the orientation of the muscle fibers is on that 45 degree angle. So if you look at a picture, I don't know, pick a bodybuilder, not from this year, you look at your shit, but like look at Jay Cutler, or whatever. You see, we can generate more strength in the lateralis because there's more surface area pulling in this direction as a net force. 
that's why this structure, when we see this in the body, that's meant to be really strong. Now, the thing about the nucleus or the, the disc rather in the annulus is the annulus has this annoying little structural property where it's weakest in the posterior lateral compartment. So posterior lateral, what the fuck does that mean? The back towards the sides is the weakest point of the annulus. Now, is it the weakest point of the annulus because that's where the greatest amount of force to the nucleus can be applied? It's like, eh, maybe, but regardless, when we see issues in the disc, we usually see them in the posterior lateral compartment. So knowing that that's the case, knowing that we have a fluid medium sort of housed in this wicker basket, knowing that we have pressure and axial compression on this, on this water balloon, and we know the basket is weakest towards the back, we can then reverse engineer and go, okay, what ranges of motion should we probably not go through to keep that disc from pushing into the weak points of the, the annulus? It's like, well, here's my water balloon. Here's bone one. Here's bone two. If, if I go like this and I start to apply more pressure to the front of the water balloon, pressure moves in gradients, right? So pressure moves from areas of high concentrations to low, whether that's pressure gases, whether that's pressure to fluids. In this case, whether that's the pressure of your disc. So if we have high concentration of pressure here because bone one is flexing on bone two, guess where the disc is going? It's going to go back. It's going to find an area of low pressure. So low pressure, it's like, well, there's high pressure in the front because there's a fucking bone pressing more on one side than the other. Nucleus goes to the back. Like, ooh, that's posterior. The weak part of the annulus is posterior lateral. So then, oh, shit, what if I started to laterally flex? Well, equal and opposite would dictate that pressure gradient is now going to push that disc to the posterior lateral component. Then when I start to rotate and I start to move those, the, this, like think of the annulus like this. And then as I rotate, this starts to happen. It starts to lose its, its, its structural stability and that sort of cross-statching wicker basket lattice work. Now the annulus gets weak when I start to rotate. Now all of a sudden, this applied force and posterior lateral of the disc is now going through a weakened position of the annulus as we rotate. And that's where we herniate discs, slip discs. But... Our body kind of has this intuitive neurological mechanism that hopefully if this happens gradual and under you know small enough loads, we actually can save ourselves the hassle of quote unquote slipping a disc by this intuitive little reflex here. Now, this is basically the reason why the spine is so difficult is this principle here. Like when I say, Mackie, I want you to flex your infraspinatus, you can sit there and go like this. If I said, Chris, while you're walking on the treadmill, flex your glute med, whether it's action or function, like, you know, you stabilize on one foot or uh, abduct and externally rotate with the posterior fiber, you can do that because your brain goes, okay, Jordan said externally rotate using the infraspinatus, motor cortex goes, all right, we're going to do that, send signal through spinal cord out through what's called the ventral spinal nerves. Now, ventral is front of the body. So, like, if this is the spinal cord, like, coming at you this way. So if we pull this from my body, ventral means coming out of the front of the spinal cord and dorsal means coming into the back, right? So dorsal, like dorsal fin, like dolphin, that means to the back. And an easy way to identify it is the dorsal, like if you just get a cross section like this, which is just like a, a slice through a spinal cord at a particular nerve root, dorsal has what's called a dorsal root ganglion. Now, the dorsal root ganglion, it acts like the post office or like a quarterback. It receives input to the body. So the dorsal root primarily receives sensory input. So like, let's put this in real time. 
um, let's say we went to go sh- play basketball, right? So I'm going to take a free throw. And so it starts in sort of this like planning part of like your motor cortex. And then it goes, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to coordinate all these muscle actions and, and express that through the ventral spinal nerves. So I take the shot and now immediately when I take the shot, there's constant, well, not immediately, there's constant sensory input from each one of these muscles through like what's called proprioception, which gets relayed back through the dorsal spinal. So ventral, so motor cortex out through ventral creates output and, and motor. Sensory input of where I am, like from a proprioceptive standpoint, comes in through dorsal. So dorsal is sensory input, ventral is motor output, right? So then like when I take the shot and I miss by like five feet in one direction, I get this proprioceptive feedback. It comes in through this dorsal root ganglion. The dorsal root ganglion goes, okay, what is this? What is this input I'm getting? It's like, oh, this is proprioception. This is relative position of my joints in space. So I can calibrate for my next shot. So the dorsal root ganglion goes, okay, I'm the post office. I need to ship this somewhere. Where does this need to go? Proprioceptive feedback needs to go to the cerebellum. Great. How does it get there? Okay, we'll send it through the posterior column of the spinal cord up through the cerebellum. Cerebellum will process that and be like, hey, we need to change that motor output to make your free throw go more center because we're hooking to the right. Like, okay, sweet. So that's how that process works. But so for 99% of our muscle contractions or 100% of our voluntary muscle contractions works through that axis, right? Where it's like motor out, sensory in, motor out, sensory in, ventral motor, dorsal sensory, right? So we can understand that loop. We can start to really start to figure out how our body sort of moves in space. Now we can start to draw a line between, okay, why is our spine function so different than our shoulder and hip? Because the reason is true muscles of spinal function, which is like when we start to talk about the erectors, when we start to talk about the multifidus, they're not innervated by the ventral spinal nerve. They are outside your conscious control. So I can be like, hey, Case, you know, contract your infraspinatus contract your supraspinatus and you can do that with relative accuracy as we try and isolate those against other muscles that move the joint through similar um, joint actions but when i say hey kyle or hey cam i want you to contract your multifidus your body just sits there and goes error 404 page not found it's like what the the fuck are you talking about what is this multifidus because it's hidden from you like it's part of your autonomic nervous system and it's that dorsal root ganglion that that um, that quarterbacks motor output to these muscles. So these muscles have just like every other muscle, they have stretch reflexes, muscle spindles. So muscle spindles cause like reflexive contraction, and Golgi tendon organs cause stretching. Right? They cause muscle relaxation or process. So between a balance of muscle spindle activity and Golgi tendon organ activity, we have basically what we call resting tone of muscle. So if a muscle is super tight we're biasing and there's a lot to muscle tightness. And we talked about that in week one, but roughly speaking, we might be biasing more of a muscle spindle activity than the Golgi tendon organ activity. So this is essentially, because anyone ever heard of this idea of stretch reflex? I love this. This is my favorite. Powerlifters are so silly. People are like, when people squat really fast and they're like, oh, I'm activating my stretch reflex. It's like, are you now? Okay, that's tremendous. Let's talk about stretch reflex. Because what happens, and reflexes are something like, has anyone ever played, like, I don't want to say a real sport, being a power, like it's a little, but has anyone, like it's like a baseball, uh, a hitter in baseball does not have time. Like the basketball player, when he's taking his free throws and no one's like breathing down his neck and he can just take the shot, 
that's when you can process and go, okay, cerebellum, let's do this. Let's plan. Let's figure out where we are in space. Let's calibrate for the second shot. Baseball, you don't have that. And I fucking hate baseball going on the record. But like, there's something to be said about the reflex of someone who's able to hit a hundred mile an hour fastball at that distance. His brain does not have his nervous system does not have the ability to go. All right. Sensory input to the up through that white matter into the brain motor output out by the time he's done that the the catcher's already looking at him with the ball in his hand going dude what took you so long you didn't even react reflexes or you put your hand on a stove right if i put my hand on a stove for whatever reason i pull it away before i even think about it because i haven't been able to think about it because it happens right at this cord level right so like sensory input comes in the dorsal root ganglion goes what is this? And it's like, oh shit, my hand's on fire. It's like brain doesn't have time for this. So immediately goes sensory in. And this is kind of what we're seeing here where the gold neuron goes to, um, goes into that white matter. Then it goes, oh shit, we need motor output right away. So that goes to the motor output of the spinal nerve and immediately causes action without the brain thinking about it. It doesn't go up to the brain, thinks about it, comes back down. You pull your fucking hand off the stove, right? So has anyone ever gone to a a physical therapist or a doctor or a chiropractor and they test your deep tendon reflexes like maybe you herniate a disc or something and they like hit you at the knee like say this is your kneecap and they take a little hammer and they do that and they look for your foot to go like that when people talk about stretch reflex that's what you get out of it if you hit the hole really hard that you elicit the tendon under an acute enough stretch that that that's the equivalent of the output you're going to get people when they talk about stretch reflex what they're really talking about is momentum Right, so momentum is this physical equation of strength times, uh, or sorry, weight times speed. So they're just using momentum. They're not using a stretch reflex because the stretch reflex is like, it, it, it carries with it all the force of like an elderly relative breathing on your forehead. Like there's no power behind the actual stretch reflex. So it's, it's such a silly thing that gets indoctrinated in the sport. So what happens now, we'll get back to the spinal cord. I, I, this is the most interesting part of our anatomy, in my opinion, by far. Because if you can understand the dorsal root ganglion as well as we can understand it as a collective, things start to really come together. So this dorsal root, so like this whole ganglion and all, innervate the motor to true muscles of the back. So when I said, hey, Cam, flex your multifidus, and he looks at me and goes, just leave me alone. He's, he, he's, he's not wrong because he has no voluntary control of his multifidus. His multifidus exists in this loop, in this part of this, this spinal cord that is independent to our voluntary control, right? So the erectors, the multifidus, the rotatories, all these true muscles of the back are innervated in this closed loop because it kind of makes sense. Like as we start to talk about multifidus and transversal spinalis groups and erectors, um, they they fly in the face of our common paradigm. Like when we look at erectors, it's like, well, erectors run in very similar orientation, like a linear pathway, like our muscles of strength do in the quad. I think quads and hamstrings run north to south, erectors run north to south. But because the erectors are innervated by the dorsal spinal nerves, they're not going to be trained in muscle action. They can't be. All they can really do is be loaded in muscle function. And the way we do that is we just think of relative joint positions. Right, we need to put these. We need to put these these joints where these muscles originate and certain in relative positions. So our body goes, okay, we need to do something. We need to have a motor output 
from this dorsal call, dorsal spinal nerve to cause this muscle to contract for whatever reason. So we need to be able to sort of codify and, and, and grade exposure. Cause if we do that too much, as we'll see, like when we start to talk about, uh, like when we start to, or when we talk about discs, like think of, um, think of this way before we get into diaphragm, like if I said the posterior lateral component is the most, um, there's the weakest part of the annulus and we know that flexion lateral flexion and rotation would do a pretty good job at putting that nucleus into that part of the annulus think of now let's go back if i can um think of now here let's do this so think of the transverse process and think of the spinous process so let's do this right so spinous process is sort of the middle fingers down the middle transverse processes are off to the side there's a muscle that inserts here from transverse process to spinous process of the vertebra above. Now, think of a disc in the middle. So this is the back of the body here. Let's do it this way. Like this is the back of the body here. This is the front of the body here. We want to stop this from happening, right? Because when this starts to happen, the disc starts to go back, right? So if we see that, like it's not continuous with, it's as if someone is facing me right now. Think of the spine of someone who's facing me. So if this starts to happen, those transverse processes move away from each other, then all of a sudden the muscle that connects from here to here, like from this to this, starts to gain length, right? So this muscle starts to stretch. So that multifidus, for example, starts to stretch as the disc starts to move posteriorly because it moves across that pressure gradient. So as I begin to flex forward, that disc starts to move back, but also the multifidus starts to stretch. And what if I flex forward and then laterally flex? And obviously, this isn't to scale, but we've created more distance between the origin and insertion. So this muscle is like really stretching now. We're like, okay, what the hell is going on here? Why is bone one moving so far from bone two? Then if we add that bit of rotation in, we really stretch out that muscle. Now, if muscle resting tone is dictated by a balance, roughly speaking, of Golgi tendon organ and muscle spindle, the, the Golgi tendon organ is like, okay, we're like really stretching here. Like we either need to relax or we need to shut this shit down. So our body goes, it gets input into the dorsal root ganglion. And it goes, hey, we're getting a lot of stretch receptor activity from multifidus between whatever core L2 and L4 or whatever. Um, we should probably do something about this. No time to go to the brain. Quickly send motor output immediately from dorsal root to multifidus to close the distance between those two relative vertebra as to not have the nucleus go into the weakened part of the annulus so we don't herniate the disc so we can maintain and self-preserve the spinal cord in which is making this decision the body goes got it sweet motor output to multifidus multifidus goes like this person that's bending over and grabbing their kids fucking skateboard or whatever immediately goes like this and then 10 minutes later they're in my office because what happens is like those muscles go okay we're stretching too far we're creating too much relative distance between bone one and bone two. And then in a effort of self-preservation, if we now move bone one and bone two closer, I'm obviously oversimplifying this because this happens across many cord levels or many vertebral segments, we'll put that muscle in the spasm. Now the problem, like if this happens in the shoulder, this happens in the hip, it's like we can go, hey, just contract your infraspinatus. And you know, we can strengthen that in action, then we can integrate stability and function later. The issue, the difficult part with the back is like contract your multifidus. You can't, right? Like your brain's sitting there looking at you going like, I don't know what to do. So what we need to learn how to do is A, minimize applied force. 
right? Minimize, why did so much force go into bone one and bone two? Why was the spine moving so much? This is why stretching the back is so like, so redundant, but potentially dangerous. Like there's a huge thing in powerlifting circles where people like just fucking hang upside down and there's squat racks from these giant bands, like, like, like weird, like BDSM powerlifting bats. It's like, what the fuck are you guys doing? Like a muscle stretch reflex happens like that. So if your muscle stretches, sure. Like I think there's benefit in distracting the lower back, but next when we talk about thoracolumbar fascia, we'll talk about the internal distraction mechanisms we can use through building strength in relative muscle groups that oppose and pull tight and create that distraction moment at the lower back rather than just being lazy fat pieces of shit on the internet who hang upside down from giant bands in their squat rack. Because what ends up stretching we didn't really talk about it is like the joint capsules between these two articulations start to stretch. Then all of a sudden when we end back in this position, those joint capsules aren't muscles. They don't have the ability to contract again and shorten. Those joint capsules are going to be affected for days on end in their ability to maintain um, relative tension from a structural standpoint, the ligaments between uh, your, your pelvis and your lumbar spine, your lumbar spine and your sacrum or ilium or in between lumbar vertebra, those ligaments stretch and they're not like muscles. They don't regain, they don't regain their elastic or they don't regain their resting, their resting state like a muscle does. So stretching through the lower back becomes really potentially dangerous because it, it limits our structural ability to stabilize and puts more demand on our function to call. And our function is like, when people talk about strengthening your lower back, what are you strengthening your QLs? Like what, what's there? Your external oblique. Like there's when people talk about, Oh, your low back is weak. It's like what muscle name it. There's nothing there. Like your low back is like, it's your erectors. It's your transversal spinalis group. It's your thoracolumbar fascia, but like the actual muscle, like there's nothing there to strengthen. Cause there's nothing there to call on. Like we can't contract any of the shit voluntarily. You can do all the 45 degree low back extensions you want. And you are going to elicit like dick stimulus when it comes to actually putting, because your, your glutes and hamstrings will buffer. And your if you have any applied load, your lats will buffer. So it's like when we start to talk about um, like the big three and core function, and we talk about deep spine muscles towards the end, we'll start to be able to pick apart where a lot of the, um, the, the misapplication goes when we think of exercise selection for actually strengthening the lower back. Okay. I know I said the dorsal spinal thing was, or the dorsal spinal brute was my favorite. I think I lied. I think this is my, like if I was stuck on a desert Island and had to improve performance through one method and downregulate pain through one method or one muscle group, I think this is it. I think, I don't know. Like, it's like, it's like asking a parent what their favorite child is. If that parent isn't my parents, cause it's pretty easy that it's my sister. Cause she's like a real doctor not just playing one on the internet. But like the diaphragm is like, it's pretty fucking cool. So it separates first off. It has like, let's look at the diaphragm through two lenses. It has a, a mechanical, um, a huge mechanical role that it plays in like just its architecture, where it sits, what's it, what it separates from. And it's like role in what's called relative strength, like in an antagonist agonist relationship with other muscles that it interfaces with. So we have like a mechanical lens we can look at the diaphragm through. And then we have like a functional or neurological lens. Both are like blow your fucking mind cool. Like when you, when you understand like the implications that the diaphragm has. So 
let's start with the anatomical structural. So the diaphragm is like this dome-shaped muscle that separates your thoracic or your chest cavity from your inner abdominal cavity, right? So it plays, think of it like playing, like the, it's the main floor. And then we have like the apex of our lungs and our strap muscles, which like are accessory muscles of breathing. So like uh, the, the superior fibers of the serratus, the scalenes, the SCM, all these muscles here are the roof to the, to the main floor, right? And now the pelvic floor plays the basement to the main floor, right? So the diaphragm has this agonist-antagonist relationship with strap muscles in the neck, which are accessory muscles of breathing. And it also has a responsibility to the pelvic floor to be able to have a relative strength and balance to maintain pressure gradients of inner abdominal pressure. When you see girls pee on the platform, this is 90% the issue. There's something wrong with the diaphragm because it's almost like Charles Poliquin popularized this model of like joint pathology in the early 2000s based around an imbalance and strength of agonist and antagonist. Where it was like, maybe your elbow hurts because your extensors are weak and your flexors are overdominant. Maybe your knee hurts because your quads are overdominant and your hamstring is weak. I think there's some validity in those examples. I think there's a lot of validity in this idea that we might be inhalation dominant and the inhalation dominance is, it plays a, a structural role and it also plays uh, a neurological role. So in this vent lens of muscle action, it's like, okay, if we inhale, that means the diaphragm lowers, right? So if we're inhalation dominant and we're just lowering, 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 like if we think about it, when we lift it, when we lift and we're breathing in heavy, before we rip that heavy deadlift, like we're calling on all horses. We're trying to get this big inhalation. So from a purely structural standpoint, you know, if we're, if we're utilizing inhalation, we're going to be utilizing our strap muscles a lot more to elevate our upper ribs. And if we're not pushing that diaphragm up and pushing full exhalation, we're building up continuously too much pressure on the basement right and so it's like a lot of times when we look at like you know micturation issues on the platform it's like fix the breathing component get people to actually learn how to fucking exhale and just from a purely mechanical standpoint you're going to decrease the amount of pressure because if we're always inhaling it's like yeah you're pushing that pressure into a point of low concentration which is going to be in the pelvic floor so it's not about you know, you can do fucking Kegels until the cows come home, but it's like, if you got 95% on your back and you're applying too much force, it's not about the tissue tolerance. It's like, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. If you get the diaphragm to have a good Delta, like a good flux of inhalation to exhalation, purely from a mechanical standpoint, we're going to be at an advantage. Now when we think about it through a neurological lens. We look at this neurological lens and we think, Okay, what what is the what is the process that drives inhalation and exhalation? Well, it's it's, it's voluntary, it's it, and it's also autonomic, right? So our autonomic nervous system, we touched on this briefly in week two when we started talking about the four functional subcomponents of the shoulder. Our autonomic nervous system breaks down into um, peripheral, sorry, uh, parasympathetic and sympathetic. So it's the sympathetic that drives the inhalation, right? Like activation of sympathetic nervous system drives that inhalation because it's like okay let's circulate oxygen coming into the body as fast as we can then what we want to do when, when our, we're exhaling and we're getting rid of carbon dioxide is okay well we have no oxygen coming in so let's go parasympathetic and slow this heart rate down so it's like from a neurological perspective it's most people are sympathetic dominant like if you take most people and go okay i want you to take 
the slowest breath you can, the slowest inhalation you can through your nose. Time it. Then holding that breath, initiate and time your slowest exhalation immediately after. You'll watch people, and most people are inhalation dominant or sympathetically driven or in a stress state. They're really good, or maybe not really good, they're better at inhaling from a duration standpoint than they are exhaling. Like they'll take a 30, 40 second breath in through the nose and then they'll pause and they'll go to exhale and they'll feel like they're in the bottom of a swimming pool. And then they'll like, they'll exhale for like two or three seconds through their nose and then they'll freak out because they feel like they need more oxygen. And then they, and they start breathing. It's like, they have no control. They have no, they have, they're so sympathetically driven and like this plays like huge, huge, huge implications on performance. Cause that tells me we have no ability to perform with a, any concentration of carbon dioxide in our body. Carbon dioxide is, and I don't want to go too much into the physiology of it, but it's carbon dioxide that actually drives oxygen into tissue, right? It's carbon dioxide that basically knocks oxygen off what's called hemoglobin. So like there's this heme molecule that has like these four little structural subcomponents and in the middle of it, um, it, that's where the oxygen is bound to. So it's carbon dioxide that knocks that oxygen off and puts it into tissue. Like I'm oversimplifying, but like if from a purely physiological, like the hematological, like blood value standpoint, if I have an athlete that is showing that sign of like, Hey, breathe in through your nose, time it. And they're immediately like, <sighs> like as they exhale, it's like, okay, you can't possibly even getting the most out of your, your muscle you've accrued because you can't even drive the oxygen adequately into, into the tissues, right? Like it's the scarcity of oxygen that accumulates carbon dioxide faster that allows like Elliot Kip Judge. I think he was in one of my slideshows. He's actually run that two hour marathon thing before. Like he went viral a couple of days ago, but he ran, ran an unofficial race before. He can operate with carbon dioxide in his system likely better than anyone else but it's because it drives the oxygen into his tissues so he can run 26 consecutive four minute 34 second miles um and but wait there's more the diaphragm has a fascial attachment to the psoas oh by the way it's like the biggest convergence of function in our entire body because function is breathing and walking and the diaphragm which we use to breathe interfaces with one of the major muscles of gait cycle which is our psoas so there's that too like the diaphragm, when I think it's my favorite, it might be my favorite, just because if you think about it, you know how last week we did the Thomas test? If anyone ever implements a Thomas test with a client and wants to see if their diaphragm is potentially working properly or working against them, in that Thomas test position, have them push up on your hand, like with that hip extended, so with that psoas being lengthened, just like put your hand on their knee and go, hey, take a breath in, and as you hold your breath and brace, push your knee up into my hand. And you'll see with people who have diaphragm issues, they'll start to shake. They'll start to shake as they breathe in because of this fascial attachment of the diaphragm of the psoas. So the diaphragm is lowering. And if there's some sort of dissonance, whether like the lumbar spine is unstable, causing the, the psoas to be quote unquote tight, and that pulls on that fascial attachment to the diaphragm. If that's somewhat dissonant, we breathe in and we think we're improving our stability. But if our diaphragm is throwing off our relative position of our psoas because of that fascial attachment, we're actually making ourselves more unstable. You'd be surprised how many people, when they breathe in and flex their hip under resistance, start to shake and say, whoa, 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 what's happening when you're trying to stabilize your lumbar spine under load and you're using breath to try and stabilize your spine as you use the psoas as we go through hip flexion? Like You're making yourself more unstable. 
this is where reinstating hip function comes in, right? So this is to me like this, you get the diaphragm, right? Things really start to fall into place. That in itself is a 16 week course about breathing and the diaphragm. Um, but something if you guys wanted to look into at the very least, recognize it, recognize the fascial attachment, that's going to be our biggest implication from function. And then understanding that the, the I mean, to rehash what we talked about in week two, the, the voluntary and autonomic function of our breath cycle is our gateway into our autonomic nervous system, right? So I use the concussion analogy of like the eyes are the gateway into the brain. The, in, in a kind of a muddled analogy, the breath is the gateway into the autonomic nervous system. So you have an athlete that's sympathetic dominant, they're likely going to be inhalation dominant. They're likely going to have issues either at the pelvic floor or up in the, up in the traps or the, the strap muscles and maybe an issue with the psoas and the lumbar spine. So a lot stems from the diaphragm. Okay, we got, I think we got time. This will be our last slide for today. This is as far as anyone else got. Now, we talked a little bit about being dorsally innervated, being something that's primary to muscles of stability of the spine, and why that dorsal innervation, because we don't have voluntary control, changes the relationship of fiber orientation and designation of a muscle of strength versus muscle of stability. So here we have the erectors, which run north to south, right? Like erectors run pretty much straight up the side of the spine. We have three of them, iliocostalis being the most lateral, longissimus being slightly more medial, and then spinalis being the most medial. Now, these erectors, if we look at them and think, oh, they run up and down like a quad, like a hamstring, like a bicep, like a tricep, they must allow us to train strength in muscle action. But we think, no, fundamentally, they're innervated by a part of our spinal cord that we have no control over. It's not going to be about strength. It's going to be about stability. So knowing that, we have to think, okay, if it's not training muscle action, building muscle strength, not moving origin from insertion, what is, what is the opposite of that? What is the muscle function? It's like, well, the muscle function of the erectors is anti-flexion. Right. So it's different. And this enters in the conversation of, Hey, don't, don't deadlift with a rounded back. It's like, uh, yeah. Like if you're Janice from accounting and you just started with a personal trainer, maybe don't deadlift with a rounded back because the rounding in the thoracic spine has to be controlled. Right. So training the erectors under heavy load through the lumbar spine, where we're not afforded that same amount of structural stability from the rib cage could potentially be dangerous um, for people who are untrained. It becomes dangerous again for people who are really well-trained. Um, so there's a powerlifter named Konstantin Konstantinov. So I'm going to post a video after you guys are done because you're the last group where he's, he's got just fucking railroad tracks for erectors and he pulls with a massive flexion in his thoracic spine. Like he deadlifts with a, a quite a flexed upper back. And that trains the function of the erectors, like bodybuilders are talking about like, oh, I want to build thickness. So I'm going to do like, I don't know, rack pulls. And what do they do? They end up in this like almost triple extended, like Olympic weightlifting position and they stand up tall and all they do is they flex their back. And it's like, well, there's no resistance. The, the lat muscles are going to pull like down and around and the resistance is pulling straight to the ground. It doesn't make any sense. Please stop doing that. You sound silly when you talk about trying to keep your waist small when you the only way you can train your erectors is actually by training in a flex a purposely flex position but making sure that that flexion moment stops where the lumbar where the lumbar spine starts right because if i'm here like if i'm in a position where okay my low back is an extended curve to start right it's in a lordotic position 
Now I can go through flexion of the lumbar spine without being in lumbar flexion, right? So I can go from an extended neutral lordotic curve. So a, a normal lordotic curve is an extended curve, go through degrees of flexion, bringing me to a neutral position. I haven't changed and biased any pressure gradient through the disc to move it posteriorly. Like I'm, my lumbar spine is flexed relative to normal, but it's not flexed relative to gravity. So the, the discs aren't in a, in a dangerous position. So we're allowed to, and we should be encouraged from a performance standpoint, once we have the quote unquote core stability, and we'll, and we'll discuss that next week, we should be encouraging at some point in training, periodizing in purposeful exercises of thoracic flexion under load. Because if we think the erectors have a great mechanical advantage in stabilizing the spine, and we have so many joints in the spine, like when we did that shoulder thing, it's like, all right, I want you to squeeze your hand here versus squeeze your hand here. And everyone reported a stronger output here in the structural position. So it's like, if here we have kind of like, let's say two joints, like scapula, thoracic, and um, glenohumeral, that when put in unstable positions, down-regulate force output, distal to that instability. Okay. Let's think of the spine now. Let's think of all the joints in the spine and everything being distal to that. We want to build systemic strength in someone, fortify their spine from a functional stability standpoint using purposeful thoracic flexion under load and the strength of everything. The strength of everything doesn't go up. Your ability to express the strength you have distal to the spine goes up by the same principle is now we're, we're training stability, functional stability of the spine in increasingly unstable positions structurally. So that's sort of the go when it comes to the erectors. They have all the earmarks of a, of a muscle that should be trained for strength through muscle action. So people will start to train like extension of their back, thinking they're training their erectors. Like a classic example for me is how people initiate the safety squat bar. So you know, a lot of people are taught to push up on the handles, but it's like now there's no anti-flexion moment in my upper back. So I hit the hole in a safety squat bar. And the first thing I do is this, my erectors aren't under load. My erectors aren't under load because my upper back isn't flexed. It's only when I'm here that I'm flexed. Now here, my erectors are loaded. So like a safety squat bar to me is like someone with strong erectors should, should and will likely adopt tucking that rib cage down, neutralizing and stabilizing the lumbar spine, and then overloading the erectors in their upper back. And so the, upper, the safety squat bar is a really good exercise for building upper back strength and erector, essentially erector spinal stability if it's loaded in function, because we can't load the erectors in the action. I can't be like, yo, uh, Chris, like contract your iliocostalis. Like you just can't do it. And the final one we're going to talk about is the transversal spinalis group. Now, there's a few listed here. Multifidus is the most, the most prominent. If you ever come across someone who tells you that you can isolate one of these next to another one, and it's like, oh, we're going to do this for the rotatories, and we're going to do this for the multifidus, it's like, no, you're not. You'll be lucky if you can elicit a stimulus in this group at all, because it's so central, right? There's so much there's so many things that have to buffer force before these are on trial. So that's what makes it difficult to put ourselves in a relative position when it, when these muscles act up. So when people walk out and they say they threw, they're walking and they say they threw out their back, likely it's one of these muscles that's decided through that dorsal root little like reflex um, from a motor output standpoint, that's in some sort of spasm. And likely it's going to be all three, but 
if understood, this is going to be sort of the base level in which we start to address the spine. So next week we'll start, we'll talk about the thoracolumbar fascia. We'll talk about like the core four, like your rectus, your internal, external oblique and your transverse. And then when we go into actual, okay, how do we, how do we simultaneously begin to address different subsystems that stabilize the spine? Like we're going to approach it from like almost concentric circles where we'll start right in at the, at the transversospinalis group which is identified as we'll call like the seventh layer back muscles or the deepest muscles of the spine. This is where we're going to start our approach. And then we're going to start to go a little bit further out. So we'll go, okay, if we have issues with these muscles, how do we address these muscles? Like let's, when you hear hooves, don't go looking for zebras, right? And I think a lot of people look for complex answers in the spine because they don't understand some of these fundamental mechanisms. And then they look to just, they, they, they look to get, security through obscurity it's like if i just say enough big word and this is coming from me like when i say people get too like jargon laden and applying concepts to certain parts of the body when i say that it's like okay we're really fucking missing the point here so it's like when you hear hubs don't go looking for zebras if your back hurts or your back is an issue with lifting let's start with your back not like oh well you see like your feet are weak so i want you to do like towel scrunches it's like what the fuck are you talking about like can we just focus on the spine so we'll focus first on like stability through the rotatories, multifidus as best we can. Then we'll build out into the erectors as they, as they affect with the transversal spinalis group, the thoracolumbar fascia. Then we'll start to build out the thoracolumbar fascia um, and it has, how it interfaces with the internal oblique and the transverse abdominis and the lats and the glute max. And then we'll talk a little bit about counterbalance loading through fascial slings. And then we'll pretty much like cover everything. And that's a nice thing about the spine is that we start to tie in concepts at the shoulder, start to tie in concepts at the hip, and we start to see how ne neither one of these hubs exists in mutual exclusivity. And this is where we use the spine to start to connect the two, like why your left SI joint hurts and you had a right shoulder injury. Like we can explain that. It's like, okay, why um, your hip doesn't want to go into greater extension on one side and why the same side shoulder hurts. It's like, we can explain that. Right. So we'll use the spine next week. Um, we'll finish off going through the, the core four. We'll go through the, um, the thoracolumbar fascia, and then we'll go into ways in which we address the spine in training. Questions, comments, concerns. Uh, I know you said that the diaphragm stuff was like a 16 week course in itself. Um, are we going to go into anything more with that? Or is there anywhere you can like point us or point us to learn more? Hewen. The Q in spelt the weird Irish way, uh, M C K E O W N apostrophe Flanagan or something. I don't know. He's super, he's super Irish. I'm pretty sure. Um, Patrick McEwen is probably right now, you know, Benny did a podcast with him. So I would say, I think Ben's actually had him on twice and he's having a course at his gym at some point. Um, so I, there's, let me see if I can find the muscle intelligence podcast of uh, Pat on Ben's show. Um, and I'll post that to the group as well. But I would say he right now is probably one of the best when it comes to, because that'll tie into HRV as well. Um, cool. Okay. Thanks. Because I think that yeah, that's, no uh, that's something that I probably need to dig into a little further. So if you can shoot any info, that'd be cool. Yeah, yeah, I'll uh, I'll dig it up right now and I'll post it. Thank you. Yeah, no worries. Any other questions?
Uh, I had questions about breathing, um, specifically like with powerlifting and then like also like working with clients. Like I've heard like cue, like the exhalation as you're moving the weight, like with the bench, like as you're moving it up for like GPP, but then for powerlifting, it's like hold the brace, the air the entire time. Um, so I was wondering if you talk about that a little bit more. So exerting force and exhalation can actually transiently improve a spike in what's called intrathecal pressure, which is the pressure that's built up within like your spinal cord itself. So that's where like, I would say there's a relative point in the force curve of the movement. So not a force curve in the individual, like the sticking point. Like if you're, if you have a chance in hell and you're working at maximal weights, as you accelerate through the sticking point, it might be beneficial to use that back pressure of exhalation to increase interfecal pressure to exhale through that point. The problem is if you exhale through that point and there's not enough pressure to overcome and stabilize to exert more force against the high percentage load that you're using, now you're in a potentially dangerous position where you've, you've, you played that strong hand and you're looking across the table at pocket aces and you're like, oh, fuck, I'm under heavy load and I've lost that ability to uh, bolster my intra-abdominal pressure by looking for a quick transient spike to get me through it. I think bench rest is going to be obviously safer because their spine is in a stable position and it's laying on a bench. Um, I would say squatting would be the one that I think exhalation would be potentially useful in using that quick brief spike of intrathecal pressure with exhalation through a sticking point, but you better be damn sure. Cause if not, it's like you're going down with the ship. But recognizing that I think is important. Like if you exhale through that sticking point and you can't overcome it, then know like, okay, like fail with the bar, have your splatters. Um, but no, like once you play that hand, it's like, all right, dude, like it's, it's done. It's time. Like your speech is over. It's time to get off stage. Like you did not, you are not grinding through this lift. Once you, you've lost that. It's like, it's like, they're still making fucking fast and the furious movies, which blows me away. It's like the, the, the gas stuff they use. It's like one of them, it's like he's going to blow the shit out of the engine, but the whole idea is to get it across the line first before this fucking bomb that he's riding around blows up. It's that idea. So it's a, it's a power play. Like it's an advanced move. And I would say for most people, probably best and not worth it to risk that. Um, and hopefully we're not like one rep maxing, you know, I mean, not to say, who knows, maybe you don't have like quote unquote normal clients. Um, and if they are more advanced and we can teach them that, um, that that is a relative risk, but know how, like learning how to fail, I think is, is a huge part of being comfortable in using that as a prescribed method of overcoming heavy weights. Like if you're confident that this person knows how to fail a rep and isn't just going to fucking like just bail on you. next thing you know, you end up fucking zercher squatting like this asshole's one rep max. And it's like, okay, then, then do it. Um, in your own training, yeah, I think squatting as you overcome the sticking point. Like I know, like, you know, lifted with you for a few years. Like you could, you could utilize that. I think the deadlift, you want to wait until you're already through the movement because there's more shear force in the moment in which you'd be exhaling. When you think about the force curve of the movement and where the sticking point is, the sticking point in the deadlift for the most people is in a position in which the trunk is much more flexed therefore the lumbar spine that are much more sheer therefore we want as much reinforcing of the intra-abdominal pressure as we have so squatting i think there's a benefit benching it doesn't really matter um deadlifting it's too dangerous of a position to utilize that spike and do you got to hold your breath otherwise if you exhale you're gonna introduce too much shear and not enough internal pressure 
uh, or you'll lose that internal pressure in the inner abdominal cavity. Hope that helps. Yeah, totally makes sense. sense. Sweet. All right, guys, any other questions, comments, concerns? Yeah, so you have questions, put them up in the group. Um, and then I'm going to post a few videos. I'll post that podcast where I can find it, and I'll put up a, a video of KK um, just because I like to watch him deadlift. Um, but yeah, if no questions, we'll see you guys next week.